Dateline, Monday, September 30th, 1929, Kansas City Star, Kansas City, Missouri. Police Statement of Mrs. Mamie Hoffman. Before I knew what was happening, I heard the shot, and I jumped out the door and ran upstairs. While I was running up the stairs, I heard a second shot. Mr. Bill Reed lives down the stairs from us, and I knocked on his door, and the Reeds were entertaining guests. Mr. Reed opened the door, and then he went downstairs with me. When we got into the Bennett's apartment, Mr. Bennett was lying on the floor, and Mrs. Bennett was in the living room. I saw Mr. Reed pick up the gun, but I do not know where it had been. Mrs. Bennett then sat down beside Mr. Bennett, and sitting there on the floor, she became hysterical. Mr. Reed then said, Call the doctor. He arrived in just a little while, and just as the doctor began his examination and had announced Mr. Bennett dead, the police officers and a reporter from the Star came in. Listeners, welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Listeners, with the Thanksgiving holiday coming up, I plan to do a Thanksgiving murder. Sadly, if you Google murder plus Thanksgiving, there are quite a few examples. In fact, I realized I've already done one on the podcast. Case number seven is a Thanksgiving murder. I called it The Nicest Guy, the Lowell Lee Andrews case from 1958. The one I've been working on is more recent. And I've got a lot of research on it, 
but it's really a downer. I hate the murderer, and I keep finding myself judging the victim, which I don't like. So, I am going to put some more thought into that case and leave it for later. I can't say the case I'm doing tonight is a lighthearted case because, you know, it's a murder. However, it's not as depressing as my usual cases. No children or animals or axes are involved. There is an excellent book on this case called The Devil's Tickets by Gary M. Pomerantz, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-T-Z, who's a a historian and a journalist and also a very good writer. I highly recommend the book. It's on Amazon.com. The link is in the show notes. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. John Gilbert Bennett is born on the 5th of November, 1892, in Saline County, Illinois. Saline County is a rural county, mostly farmers, way down in the southern part of Illinois, that part wedged between Missouri and Indiana and Kentucky. His parents are Jack and Amanda Bennett. It's the second marriage for both, and both brought children into the marriage and then have a bunch more kids themselves. Jack Bennett isn't even 50 when he dies in 1897, leaving his widow with a huge family to support on the farm. John is only five years old, and he's not the youngest. My guess is that All the children learn from an early age. They need to work hard and make their own way in life. John certainly does that. He becomes a pharmacist. I found his draft registration card for World War I. The date on the card only says June, no year. But it lists his age as 24, so doing the math, 1917 would be when he enlisted. At the time, he's living in Chicago, working at Bayerman Drugstore on Harrison Street. He's single and lists his mother as his dependent. The card says he's tall, slender, blue-eyed, with light hair. In his photos, he looks out at the world confidently, a nice-looking, healthy specimen of American manhood. John is assigned to the Army Medical Corps. That makes sense. He's a pharmacist. But the war is nearly winding down. So by the time he finishes his training as a medical officer, the war is almost over. It was called the Great War back then, of course, because only psychics knew there would be another world war, too, in only 20 years. Myrtle Adkins is born on the 20th of March, 1895, in Tiller, Arkansas. That's a tiny southern town, not far from 
the Mississippi and Louisiana borders, maybe 20 miles from the Mississippi River. Myrtle's parents are Henry and Alice Bell Adkins. Henry dies when Myrtle is only three years old, leaving Alice a poor widow. Alice struggles to support her only child as a widow, but she does a good job raising Myrtle, working as a housekeeper in Little Rock, Arkansas, for a lawyer named Abner McGee, or McGee, maybe. Alice and Myrtle are very close. In Myrtle's teens, they move to Memphis, Tennessee, where Alice gets a job as a telephone operator while training to be a stenographer. In her early 20s, she works at the office of attorney J. Francis O'Sullivan. Myrtle is a tall, striking woman who has many bows. That's bows as in suitors, many suitors, not, not bows in her hair. In her photos, she is the quintessential picture of the early 20th century American woman. She votes. She has her own money and supports her doting mother. Myrtle is not going to settle for the first man who pursues her. She wants the whole package, love and success. She finds that when she meets up-and-coming John Bennett at a train station in St. Louis, Missouri. It is a whirlwind romance. They are quickly engaged. As luck would have it, they marry in Memphis on the very day the Great War ends, November 18, 1918. Listeners, John is called Jack by most people. Actually, that's the case with my son. His name is John, but we call him Jack. You see both names in most of what I read. I'll try to call him Jack from now on, but if I mess up, just ignore it. I mean the shooting victim. The energetic young couple starts out with big dreams. Not much money, but plenty of ambition. The census records of 1920 show the young couple living in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Myrtle's mother lives with them. Jack's profession is listed as salesman and his industry drugs. So, a drug salesman. Undoubtedly, he leverages his pharmacist experience to sell all kinds of products to drugstores. Cosmetics and personal hygiene products are becoming huge industries in the Roaring Twenties. According to Gary Pomerantz, who wrote The Devil's Tickets and interviewed friends and family of the couple, Myrtle often traveled with her husband on his sales trips. They make a good team and over time become very successful. By 1929, when Jack is killed, he makes over $15,000 a year, a six-figure income in today's money, managing a large sales territory for a perfume company. He is known as a producer. That's high praise from his colleagues. He and Myrtle and Alice 
live in a luxurious new condo in Kansas City, Missouri. For the most part, they are living the American dream. Of course, as with all couples, things aren't perfect for the Bennetts. Jack and Myrtle each have their moments when their tempers take over. Family, friends, and colleagues all have stories about their temper tantrums. There's a story of Jack getting mad on the golf course and throwing his clubs over a fence. Myrtle's known to sulk and, I guess in today's terms, be pretty bitchy when she doesn't get her way. After 11 years of marriage in 1929, the Bennets have no children. Today, when we look back a hundred years, we often picture large families in America. But even a hundred years ago in America, there are couples who are just fine being childless. However, it's not the norm. All you have to do is look through magazines of the 20s and 30s, face it, even magazines today, to see the stereotypical image of the perfect family is successful dad who goes off to work every day in a suit and tie while happy homemaker mom tends to the house and the garden and the two children and the dog say Mary and Bobby and Rover, who are mischievous but kind-hearted and fairly well-behaved. This iconic family image is not what the Bennets have. Myrtle has suffered a couple of unsuccessful pregnancies. I'm sure by 1929, when she's in her mid-30s, she feels her biological clock ticking that's probably a source of some stress for her. It's safe to say that men in general, and certainly Jack Bennett in particular, are not as supportive as they could be when things go wrong during pregnancy. My sense is that there's some compassion, but not for very long. At some point, the woman is expected to get over it and carry on. I don't know exactly what happened with Myrtle's pregnancies. Pomerantz caused the miscarriages. A newspaper account says, quote, Mrs. Bennett had lost two children in recent years shortly at birth, unquote. That sounds more like stillbirth to me. That's especially traumatic for the mother. It's a double whammy of grief over losing the child plus the postpartum depression. Myrtle clearly does have postpartum depression. Her old boss and family friend, the attorney she worked for in Memphis, J. Francis O'Sullivan, describes classic symptoms. Quote, I have been at homes with the Bennetts where she suddenly would leave the table without any apparent reason and go away by herself. After holding a handkerchief to her eyes a short time, she would return. Unquote. This is in front of other people, 
when she's trying to hold herself together. So certainly in private, her depression is probably much worse. In spite of the problems, most people who know the couple consider their marriage reasonably happy. A friend from Memphis says, quote, He showered luxuries upon her. He gave Myrtle diamonds and a large motor car, a handsome apartment, and everything her heart desired. They were infatuated with one another, and the tragedy astonished all their friends here, unquote. Even the maids, who enjoy gossiping about their employers, call the Bennets the lovebirds. Still, public perceptions aren't always what's really going on. Myrtle says, quote, I have been unhappy with my husband several years. I was happy when we were poor. I worked with and for him, and we had a happy home. Then he became prosperous and could give me everything I desired, but I lost him. He didn't care for his home or me after he began earning a great deal. Unquote. Apparently, Jack is having his own problems. Facing middle age, preoccupied with his career and material things, there are hints that he's not being faithful to Myrtle when he's on the road, and he does travel frequently. That's his job. Alice will later allude to a love letter from another woman to Jack that Myrtle confronted Jack with. I think we can safely say there are signs that trouble is brewing in the Bennett marriage. Both partners are feeling a kind of discontent, worried that life's passing them by. Under other circumstances, the two might have worked things out amicably or even quietly gone their separate ways. In their social circles, divorce isn't out of the question in those days. However, the marriage of Myrtle and Jack doesn't end quietly. It explodes and makes sensational headlines. The fateful day of Sunday, November 29, 1929, is just a nice day for the Bennetts and their neighbors, Mamie and Charles Hoffman. From the Kansas City Star, quote, The Bennetts and Hoffmans each have owned their apartments at the Park Manor, a cooperative self-owning structure, two years, unquote. So, Cooperative self-owning structure. I think we call those condos now, or maybe co-ops. The Park Manor is located on the corner of Ward Parkway and Roanoke Street, across from Brush Creek. Ward Parkway is a ritzy street in Kansas City, Missouri. It still is today. Lots of beautiful mansions. It's fun just to drive up and down and look. If you are familiar with Kansas City, the Park Manor is just a couple of blocks from the Country Club Plaza. The Plaza is a beautiful shopping area in Kansas City. According to the Kansas City Public Library webpage, the Plaza Shopping Center 
had been conceived by Jesse Clyde J.C. Nichols in 1912, when Brush Creek Valley was just an uninhabitable marsh with a nearby hog farm. J.C. Nichols, already a prominent real estate developer in areas south of Kansas City, believed that automobiles, as opposed to electric streetcars, would form the basis of future transportation. Therefore, the architects he hired, Edward Bueller Delk and Georgie Kessler, planned the shopping center to have wide streets and considerable space devoted to convenient parking. Listeners, I have to laugh here. If you've ever tried to find a parking place at the plaza, you know it's not convenient or usually even existent. The location, five miles south of downtown Kansas City, seemed to pose a challenge in an era when virtually all upscale shopping occurred in the heart of cities connected to residential areas by electric streetcars, would shoppers drive their vehicles to a shopping center that was not downtown. When Nichols announced his plans in 1922, skeptics derided it as Nichols' folly. To the great surprise of many observers, the Country Club Plaza, which is now considered the nation's first suburban shopping center, was spectacularly successful after its first buildings opened in 1923. The plaza's attractive Spanish-style architecture, I believe the inspiration for the design was Seville, Spain. Green spaces and scenic location next to Brush Creek drew many customers. It also contributed to Nichols' vision for long-term residential development. The apartments and homes surrounding an attractive and profitable shopping center, Nichols reasoned, would only increase in value. And I think he was right. It's still an upscale area, although in recent years, there have been a lot of problems in the area with panhandlers and muggings and burglaries. In 1925, Charles Pete Patrat, maintenance supervisor for the Nichols Company, hung Christmas lights on the Mill Creek building for the first time. The display was hardly impressive by modern standards. Just a few strands of Christmas tree lights hanging over a doorway with some small Christmas trees arranged along the sidewalk. From the display's decidedly humble beginnings, Petrat oversaw the installment of more lights on the buildings each year, beginning a tradition that continues today. Each Thanksgiving, draws nearly a 100,000 people who cram into the plaza to see the lighting ceremony for one of the nation's most outstanding lighting displays. Listeners, I've seen many Christmas light displays, including Paris and New York and Chicago, and I would have to say my favorite is the one at the plaza in Kansas City. All the buildings and the fountains and the horse-drawn carriages are outlined with lights. The windows and doors and roofs and corners 
and trees and bushes and just everything is lit up. It's just spectacular. If you've never seen it and you live in the area or close at least, I highly recommend going some evening. It's an awesome display. I can't remember if the lighting ceremony is the night before or the night of Thanksgiving. Anyway, for sure, by Black Friday. Um, the ceremony's very crowded. Think Times Square on New Year's Eve. And there's lots of traffic just to get there. But it's worth it, at least one time. It's just stunning. So, this is where the Bennetts and the Hoffmans live, in this bustling, brand new, at the time, luxurious neighborhood for up-and-comers. The condo building is still there and still upscale. Did a little research on the real estate history of the building. The 1920 census lists the real estate value of the Bennetts' apartment at $15,000. $225,000 in today's money. It looks like that's about what you might pay now for one of the condos in the building. It's a beautiful red brick building. It looks like three stories on one side and four on the other. There are two main entrances, one on Ward Parkway and one on Roanoke. There's a diagram of the apartment that was used at the trial. Oh, spoiler alert, there will be a trial in this case. It's in one of the collections at the Kansas City Public Library, and um, it's reproduced in The Devil's Tickets. It's a two-bedroom, two-bathroom apartment. There's a bedroom and bathroom in the back where Alice lives, the mother-in-law suite. There's a den and a dining room, then the Bennett's bedroom and the living room. Their bathroom is between the den and the bedroom. There's no kitchen on the diagram, but they have one, so I'm guessing it's near the dining room somewhere. The apartment isn't huge by any means. I I have a hard time guessing the square footage. Um, there aren't any dimensions on the diagram. I don't know, maybe 2,000 square feet at, at the most, I think. Just a wild guess. There aren't any dimensions on the diagram. Um, so it's nice size, but not enormous. Much longer than it is wide. Sorry for the detour, listeners. <laughs> Back to the story in the newspaper about that Sunday. John Bennett and Charles Hoffman played golf together at the Indian Hills Golf Club, still a gorgeous golf course in Mission, Kansas. It wouldn't be far from where Bennett and Hoffman live. And went to the Bennett apartment about two o'clock and had dinner with their wives. In the afternoon, the wives joined their husbands in a foursome at the golf course. Everybody was in a good humor. The four returned to the Bennett apartment at dark and had an icebox luncheon in the kitchen. After cleaning up a bit, they sat down to a game of bridge. Listeners, I need to digress here 
and explain a little about the game of bridge. As you'll see, it's a very important part of our story. Full disclosure, I am not a bridge expert. However, I have played regularly for many years and I would say I'm a decent player. I won't go into great detail about the finer points of the game or how to play. If you're interested, Wikipedia has a good summary of the game. Lots of web pages are out there on Bridge. I'll put some links in the show notes. For the purposes of this podcast, I just want to tell enough so the dynamics and the psychology of what happened leading up to our shooting are understandable. It's actually kind of hard because I'm trying to give you enough, but not too much. So here's my best shot. Bridge is a complicated game, which is derived from the old-fashioned game of whist. As far as more common card games go, I would say it's something like spades or hearts, if you're familiar with either of those. I'm not sure exactly when it started. I'd say the early 1900s, maybe. Maybe sooner. Again, plenty of history of bridge books and sites out there. In The Devil's Tickets, Pomerantz has a very good appendix about the basics of bridge, and the whole book goes into the history of how the game evolved during the 20th century. I've never been very interested in the history of the game, but Pomerantz is such a good writer, he makes a very compelling story out of the history of bridge. Essentially, by 1929, bridge is a very popular card game. It's something of a craze in America and Britain, especially popular with middle-class housewives. If you pick up a newspaper society column from the day, you'll find articles about local bridge parties everywhere. Also, a bridge column. Bridge clubs thrive. I'd say it's the preeminent card game in America for decades. Bridge was very popular with military people. Its popularity was pretty steady in the military up until about the 80s, would be my guess. I can remember my mom when she had bridge parties. They usually put in a quarter in the pot that the winner got to keep. As luck would have it, our school lunches cost a quarter at the time. So that's where our lunch money came from. My mother was a very good bridge player. By the way, my father never played, and I don't think my mom ever wanted him to either. Now, bridge is a good game for couples, or it can be. A bridge game at somebody's house or at a club is a pleasant social evening for couples and relatively cheap. When I first married, my husband and I were poor. We couldn't afford to go out for dinner and a movie. We often got together with other poor couples and played card games or board games at each other's houses. Not bridge, by the way. If one couple had a baby, 
we'd go there so they didn't have to get a babysitter. For housewives, home all day with kids, bridge is a nice diversion. When my kids were little, I spent many an afternoon with my friends and their kids, playing bridge, gossiping, changing diapers. Sorry, getting off the subject. Okay, so bridge is a complex card game derived from the old-fashioned game of whist, W-H-I-S-T. It's played by four people, but it's a team game, like doubles tennis. The cards are dealt out evenly to the four players, with teams sitting opposite each other. In the first part of the game, you go around the table trying to communicate what you have in your hand to your partner. At the same time, trying to gauge what the opponents have in their hands. This is called bidding. The bids, or what you're allowed to say, are limited. So teams typically develop bidding systems that are designed to best show your partner what your cards look like. This is really oversimplifying, but basically how good or bad your cards are. You could say it's a little like betting in poker, where you make bets on how good you think your hand is, but the difference is that you don't have a partner in poker. If you bluff, pretending your cards are stronger than they are, you just need to fool your opponents. In bridge, if you're bluffing, you're fooling your partner. So if you think about it, bidding badly is kind of a betrayal. You're lying to your teammate. After the bidding is over, one side will have won the bidding, meaning they have a chance to try to make whatever they bid. That side is on offense. The other side defends. That's really oversimplifying, but that's the basic idea of playing out the hand. During this part of the game, the partner of the highest bidder, called the dummy, puts his cards down on the table so everybody can see them. So the highest bidder can see his hand and his partner's hand. Ideally, he makes a plan to win the hand. I'd say that part is like solving a puzzle. The defense has to play without seeing each other's cards, so that part of the game is hard and not as much fun as winning bids. From an enjoyment point of view, the most fun is when you communicate well with your partner and play well enough to make most of your bids. In the fateful game involved in our case, one team is Jack and Myrtle Bennett playing against their friends and neighbors, Mamie and Charles Hoffman. Having played cards with many married couples, all I can say is red flag. The best partnerships are those when the skill levels of the partners are fairly equal. If they're not, one player will naturally try to dominate. This can lead to friction. Every bridge player can tell you about this. Even though it's a team game, 
some partners get in heated arguments with their partner who's supposed to be on their side about things they perceive the other person did wrong. This can get very awkward. There's a bridge scene in Kansas City and one couple is legendary for this. If you're a bridge player from Kansas City, you know who I mean. My sister, not a bridge player, but a good tennis player, told me this is a problem in doubles tennis too, when teams can't agree on strategy. Add to this the prevailing attitude in the 20s that men are more intelligent and capable than women, and red flag. On the Bennett's team, Myrtle is by far the better player. For one thing, Jack doesn't get to play very often. He's on the road all the time. Myrtle loves to play and has lots of time to play and practice. Bridge is definitely the kind of game that requires study and practice. So keep all this in mind while I continue with the newspaper account of the fateful and fatal bridge game of September 29th, 1929. It was a very sociable game. Mr. Hoffman said, played for one-tenth of a cent a point. Listeners, this is very low stakes. Even if one side lost badly, just a few dollars on the line at the most. The first hour of the two, the Bennets were winners. Later, the Hoffmans began winning and put the Bennets slightly behind. There were several misplays on the part of all during the evening, Hoffman said. This makes sense. I'm sure they were drinking. Drinking is and still is a part of bridge. But he noted that when either Mr. or Mrs. Bennett made an error, each would censure the other. I've seen this happen, and it can really escalate. I think part of the problem is that it's just human nature to be more polite to people outside your family. By the way, my husband doesn't play bridge. That's one of our secrets to a long and happy marriage. As the game continued, these criticisms grew a bit harsh, Hoffman said, but he paid no especial attention to them. Then came the hand which ended the play. Bennett opened with a one-spade bid. Hoffman on the left bid two diamonds. Mrs. Bennett boosted to four spades. Listeners, that's a high bid. Like jumping into an auction with a really high amount of money. So the Bennetts won the bidding part of the game. Now, whether they should have ends up being the subject of debate. Mrs. Bennett spread dummy what Mrs. Hoffman termed a rather good hand. 
The police officer present when the statements were taken said the Hoffmans offhand referred to the dummy as a wonderful hand. Whatever the cards were that Mrs. Bennet laid down, none of the players remembering exactly in the excitement today, Bennet went set. That's bad. Listeners, about the cards, if you go online, you can find what is purportedly the fatal hand that was dealt. It's reported in newspapers and bridge magazines, but it's not the hand. Nobody knows what the cards were. That didn't stop bridge writers from calling it the murder hand. And if you're a bridge player, the hand you see is, is actually a pretty interesting hand. And you can see why the couple might have gotten into an argument about it. There's a famous bridge player of the time, Ely Culberson, who is sometimes called the P.T. Barnum of bridge. He spent his life promoting bridge and became very rich in the process. He uses this case heavily in the 20s to generate publicity for his bridge enterprises. So, this puts the Bennets way behind in the match, and they start arguing over whose fault it was. Back to the newspaper article. Mrs. Bennett criticized severely. She made it plain, Hoffman said, that in her estimation, Bennett was, quote, a bum bridge player, unquote. Well, maybe he wasn't the only one, the husband inferred. The retorts went back and forth and came to an abrupt climax when Bennett stood up, reached across the table, seized his wife by the arm, and slapped her two or three times. The bridge table almost upset. Everybody stood up, and Mrs. Bennett asked the Hoffmans to excuse themselves so the quarrel could be settled. Bennett folded up the bridge table and put away the cards. The Hoffmans tried to smooth things over and cool the feeling displayed in the bitter words of the Bennetts. They tried especially to call Mrs. Bennett. They said she seemed deeply aroused. Quote, Only a dirty cur would strike a woman in the face in the presence of friends. Unquote. Mrs. Bennett was quoted as saying this. I guess as opposed to in private or slapping her in front of the servants, that's okay. This was a different time, as you can see. Back to the article. Bennett sneered and snickered, laughing the matter off in a casual way, instead of apologizing, Hoffman added. I wonder who Hoffman thought he should apologize to, his wife for slapping her, or to them for this social faux pas. 
Bennett had planned to make a business trip to St. Joseph today. He announced he would leave immediately and would stay in a hotel the remainder of the night. He began to pack his grip. In recurrences of the argument, he would walk back and forth from a bedroom to the living room. The Huffmans again were requested to leave by Mrs. Bennett. Mrs. Hoffman walked toward the hall door. Hoffman stepped into the bathroom, and while he was there and Mrs. Hoffman was near the door, they heard shots in the living room. They hurried in and saw Bennett fall with two wounds in his body. The statement of Mrs. Adkins, the mother, shows she was awakened in her bedroom by her daughter entering a few minutes before the shooting and turning on the light. Mrs. Adkins saw her daughter rummage in a chest of drawers and bring out Bennett's revolver. Myrtle, she said, what are you going to do with that gun? I am going to give it to Jack. He is going to St. Joseph, she quoted her daughter as replying. Mrs. Bennett walked out of the room and slammed the door. A moment later, Mrs. Adkins heard a shot. She jumped out of bed, ran into the living room, and saw Bennett slump to the floor and his wife bend over him. Mrs. Adkins seized her daughter. Someone call a doctor, Mrs. Bennett said, and began crying and became partly hysterical. Listeners, there is some confusion about what exactly led up to the shooting, like the timing of the shots and who was where at what time, especially when you compare what witnesses say right after the events of September 29th and what they say during Myrtle's trial. The couple, the trial won't be for a couple of years, and people's stories change in the meantime. What I just read you is the newspaper account of the statements taken by the prosecuting attorney's office the day of the shooting. It all boils down to this. Myrtle goes to her room and gets John's revolver. At some point soon after, he's fatally shot. The Hoffmans hear the shots, but they don't witness the shooting itself, as far as we know. Just the lead-up and the aftermath. Myrtle is arrested for murder. She is distraught and out of it for the most part. She is housed at the Jackson County Jail in the death cell, which is next to the women's part of the jail. She's under constant watch and care because there are fears she might try to commit suicide. Old friend and attorney J. Francis O'Sullivan rushes to be with her and Alice. The prosecutor plays hardball. He charges Myrtle with first-degree murder and fights to keep her in jail for a while. Myrtle doesn't say much for days. She is either hysterical or heavily sedated. So the prosecutor never gets an official statement from her. Again, listeners, I don't want people to be better murderers, but my advice, as you know, is always to lawyer up and shut up. I think in her own way, that's what Myrtle did. Her lawyer quickly starts talking to the Hoffmans and Alice and other witnesses about what should be done about the unfortunate situation. 
Ultimately, Myrtle's lawyers arrange for Bond and a very high-powered defense attorney. Myrtle and her mother stay sometimes in the murder apartment and sometimes in Memphis, for the most part in seclusion, awaiting the trial. The trial is a sensation and it's really interesting. But listeners, I've talked too much already. This episode is getting too long. When they get too long, it makes it hard to do the editing on them. So I'm going to cut this off now and make it part one. I'll continue with part two tomorrow. I should be able to get it posted tomorrow. I'm almost done with the writing and really just need to do some proofreading and it would probably help if I could stay on topic better. So listeners, thank you for listening. Stay tuned for part two. I really appreciate you listening. I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends. If you could leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be awesome. I know I I usually say critical feedback is appreciated, but I actually got a couple of five-star reviews and I really like those. And they're not from my friends, so I'm really excited about them. Thank you, Gator Girl. And, oh, shoot, I forgot who the other person is. I'll, I'll give you a shout-out on the next episode. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, tomorrow, hopefully, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars. <laughs>